Well, good morning. So before I get started, let's, let's pray real quick. Let's pray. Father, it is with great joy that we come into your house this morning. Um, you've given us another beautiful day. And even more importantly, you've given us your word to share with one another uh, and to live daily for you. Uh, I ask you to be with the words that are spoken here today, that they would be yours and that uh, they would change hearts according to your will and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you remember uh, a couple months ago, I think it's been, I talked about uh, motherhood, okay? I talked about motherhood. I talked about uh, moms being readers of God's word, being obedient to it, um, loving unconditionally, unconditionally in the family, being forgiving, persevering through things, which is a very daunting list of responsibilities. Well, guess what? It's no different for the father. In fact, it's probably a little more difficult at times. Um, and it seems endless and daunting, you know, the list of responsibilities. When you're working toward uh, the goal of leading a family that serves God first before anything else in this life. Many men aren't sure how to lead, let alone where to begin the process of leading a Christian family. So before I begin that, though, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give you a few dad jokes. Because <laughs> my children love them. That, that's sarcasm. They despise when I do this. So I actually hope they're watching. So uh, here we go. Why did the carpenter leave the lumber store? He got bored. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. Did you hear about the guy who got fired from the calendar factory? He took too many days off. How about the restaurant they're building on the moon? Food's great, but there's no atmosphere. You, you had to have heard that one before. I picked that one because that one's really common. Am I right? The last one you've never heard, though. This is mine. I own this one, okay? So we had a meeting one time, an administrative meeting, <clears throat> and it was in the summertime. School was out. We're all sitting around talking, uh, waiting for others to arrive, and somebody brought up about baseball, and they brought up about um, Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson is a real, was, was a really tall pitcher, like 6'7", and he could throw a fastball like nobody's business. This is a true story. So... Um, they're playing in a game, and he throws a fastball about 95 to 100 miles an hour, and a bird flies horizontally, okay, between the pitcher and the catcher. And at the time the ball left his hand, you know, about less than a half a second later, the ball and the bird collide. Yeah, it's true. Um, so they were discussing that, and... Someone said, <laughs> someone said, so what happens to that pitch? What is that? I said, well, that's easy. That's a foul ball. <laughs> and I got some of the, I didn't get what you just did. You kind of laughed. I appreciate that. That's not what I got. My superintendent looked at me and he goes, seriously, Rich. And I said, did you think of it faster than me? <laughs> 
That one was mine, so thank you very much. <clears throat> All right. Well, listen, uh, as you saw in the gospel reading and you saw in the call to worship, uh, today we're going to talk about fathers. Look, first and foremost, all of us, all of us, and everybody else that's not here, have the same father. We all have the same father. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and to rule. We all have the same father. God's perfect. We're not. He's worthy of our pursuit toward perfection that can make us better fathers and examples of God and Christ himself. So the first place to start for a man is to acknowledge God as the father. So two quick important things. Number one, surrender to the Father's will for your life. Number two, be willing to be disciplined by him, and in turn, the discipline prunes shapes who you will become in him to better lead and serve your family. The famed former football coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, once said this to his players. He said that he was not the least bit interested in perfection but he stated he was interested in the pursuit of perfection because in the pursuit of perfection, you catch something called excellence. And that's kind of our responsibility. We're not going to be perfect. None of us are. We never will be on this earth. However, it is, you know, God is worthy of our pursuit toward perfection. Let's talk about the Father's will. Many believing men struggle with a, a false self and knowing who they are in Christ. This is Satan's attempt to undermine God's plan for the life of man as a believer and him learning his true purpose. In author John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, Eldridge discusses at length and in detail that man's purpose in life is to have a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. It is how God wired us as men, and we should never ever be ashamed of it. Let me share something with you real quick from Eldridge's book. And man, if you've never read this book, you need to read it. I'll just tell you, okay? It's a great book. One of the things John Eldridge says regarding the false self is this. At times when God seems set against everything that has meant life to us, Satan spies his opportunity and he leaps to accuse God in our hearts. You see, he says, God's angry with you. He's disappointed in you. If he loved you, he would make things smoother. He's not out for your best, you know. The enemy always tempts us back toward control to recover and rebuild the false self. We must remember that it is out of love that God thwarts our imposter. As Hebrews reminds us, it is the son whom God disciplines. Therefore, do not lose heart. Remember, we read Hebrews 12 this morning. <clears throat> A battle to fight. The battles surround us at home, work, God's wisdom and guidance is necessary for consistent victory. This varies from the simple things such as fixing something successfully to the complex such as repairing a relationship. An adventure to live, it is how we are wired. Look, when I was 12 years old, nobody had to tell me when I went on my bike rides around this neighborhood, this isn't good enough. Riding around the neighborhood, it's not good enough. You need more. Nobody told me that. My mother certainly didn't tell me that. My dad didn't tell me that. But my brothers and I got the idea, hey, we're going on a bike hike to McDonald's in Baden. So 
We ask our mother, hey, mom, we're going to go on a bike hike. We're going to go to Baden. Well, how are you going to get there? There's all those cars out there on the road. She gave us 100 reasons not to go. So, well, look, here's what we'll do. And I mapped the path out for her. We'll go down the hill. We'll go, we'll cross the road through the Northern Light Shopping Center. We'll go past Mount Galitzin. We'll go past, it was uh, Tasty Freeze then, on the sidewalk. We'll go through Baden. We don't even have to go on the main road. Okay, so we did. And we went once, twice, three, four times. Guess what? Dad got old. So what do you do? Mom, can we go on a bike hike? Sure. So now, instead of going that way, she didn't ask how we were going. She never asked. So we went out and got on, uh, what is that, 989, just past the Sunoco. And we went that way. Oh, my. That was a ball. Because then we went down to Phillip Street into Baden. And then that got old. So then we went further. And we went out. 989, and we took 989 all the way down into Ambridge. We still ended up at the McDonald's. <laughs> now listen, when we moved back here 25 years ago, I told Judy, I said, let's go for a ride. I, I have to do this. <laughs> so we got in the car, and, and we went down that hill. I think it's just up past Walter Panic Park, right? We went down that hill in our van. And we got to the bottom, and I told her, I said, you know what I used to do <laughs> several times? I, we used to get on that, hands in the air. <laughs> Not a wise thing to do. But my point is, it's how we're wired. As men, we need an adventure to live, as well as a battle, battle to fight. And we also need a beauty to rescue. rescue. And men must fight for the heart of their beauty, and love and protect her. The sense of false self that faces many men is a constant battle, while not so much for others. Let me share one more thing with you regarding uh, some of that. Eldridge says, if you have no clue as to what your false self may be, then a starting point would be to ask those that you live with or work with this question. What's my effect on you? What am I like to live with? or work with? What don't you feel free to bring up with me? If you never ever say a word in a meeting because you fear you might say something stupid, well then you know it's about time you start speaking up. If all you do is dominate a meeting because your sense of worth comes from being in charge, then you just need to be quiet for a while. If you've run to sports because you feel best about yourself there, then it's time to give it a rest. Stay home with your family. If you never play any game with other guys, then maybe it's time that you get involved in one. So his point is, face some of the fears that you have head on and deal with them. More importantly, let God help you deal with them. Men must constantly be willing to battle against Satan's attempts to create a sense of doubt within them that leads to a false sense of earthly security. <clears throat> Battling the false sense of security can begin with things such as this. Let me share this with you. Uh, I already read that to you. I don't want to read it to you again. <clears throat> 
In other words, start working on being who you are and who God wants you to be in Christ as opposed to who you have portrayed yourself to be to others. Be secure in your skin. This can only be achieved by praying and summoning the will of God for a man's life. I remember saying this to myself uh, years and years ago. Do you do this when you come across somebody? How are you? But you don't really want to know. Right? You're, that's your way of kind of greeting them. You'll say, hey, how are you? Well, if they start talking and giving you a 10-minute, that's what we ask for, right? So be careful with what we say because sometimes that's what it's going to lead to. You're going to be challenged with having to listen and pay attention to whatever. God's discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves, as we read this morning in Hebrews. So first and foremost, as a believer, an earthly father must be open to discipline from the father, his father. The father must be a man's first and continual teacher-leader. Obviously, that only happens through a relationship. You have to communicate with him. God's discipline reflects his love for man. I used to have to discipline students quite a bit. And um, I did it in a number of different ways because I always tailored it to the individual, even though I had certain specific policy. But the thing that I always did with every one of them always was I finished with the same thing all the time. And what I finished with was this. You made a mistake. This is not who you are. It's not going to define you. And it shouldn't define you, but it is absolutely necessary that you display learning from this point on. Things do have to change. You probably heard something similar when you were growing up from your dad or your mom before you got the stick or the paddle, right? You ever hear this one? This is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Really? Well, honestly, what they really meant was, where's it going to hurt the most for them? Right here. It does hurt. It is painful, but it's also necessary. When discipline is done correctly and with love, it is always effective. I'm going to say it again. When discipline is done correctly and with love, it is always effective. Now, the degree may vary, but it is effective. When I coached football in Florida, my running backs had a problem one year with dropping the ball. Dropping the ball is not acceptable on any level because if it's dropped, then somebody else can get it, and that means the other team. And So I had to come up with, uh, we had so many lost fumbles one year, my head coach was after me to find a way you know, to get the guys to hold on to the ball. So I taught them something called three points of contact. Since I didn't bring my ball, I'm going to use my Bible. <laughs> this is my, it's kind of, it's kind of fitting anyway. So you, 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 you cup it with your hand, you press it to your forearm, and you tuck it to your ribs. Okay? It's very difficult to get out that way. So I came up with a drill. Now, I have to use an illustration again. This drill was, there's a thing called a two-man sled. And there's two objects that stand up like this. It's meant for two people to hit it. One person 
generally can't hit it successfully because when you hit one, it wants to spin like this. So I taught them two things. I taught them how to keep their hips square, meaning facing straight ahead, so one guy can push this, okay? Then the other thing I did was uh, I had my quarterback hand them the ball. And then what I did next, they absolutely despised, which is as soon as the running back would hit that thing and start pushing the sled and running with the ball, I would punch the ball, I would grab the ball, I would smack the ball, I would hit the ball. I did everything that you could think of to try to get it loose because I wanted them to understand it's highly unacceptable and it costs dearly. And I did that once a week and they despised it. But I'll tell you this, in 11 games, we lost two fumbles. So that discipline, if you will, was effective. Fathers are to demonstrate the following godly characteristics. And certainly this is not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's a great place to start. They must demonstrate love, discipline, and responsibility. Validate your children. Challenge your children as opposed to exasperating them. Teach them respect. And above all, model God's grace. That's, that's a lot. That's, that's very heavy. But a father must demonstrate love and discipline to his children. Discipline to me has always been doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. My dad said one time that all he ever wanted to feel as a child was loved. Now, I know he got that from his mother, feeling loved, but not so much from his father. That really broke my heart the first time I heard that. But with seven kids in his family and his dad working long hours, evidently at times it was difficult for my grandfather to show love for all the kids in the family on a consistent basis. And that does come with a price. Um, but fortunately for my brothers and I, my, my dad broke that cycle. Now, my dad was not a guy who went around the house all the time telling us how much he loved us. He just didn't do it. He was from a different mold. But I can tell you one thing that he did do. He demonstrated it every day with his actions, every day. There was no mistaking that he loved us and his family. He taught us to be responsible. He disciplined us when necessary, just as the Heavenly Father does as well. And my dad would say something, and when he said it, that's exactly what he meant. There was no gray area, zero. One time, my brother and I were in the basement, and we were really cutting it up. We were about, I'll say, six and eight years old, approximately. So uh, he said something to us once, knock it off. We kept it up. Didn't speak again. Left the basement out to the garage. So my brother and I are still carrying on. My older brother says, go see what dad's doing. And as sure as you are sitting in these seats, I walked over to the basement door into the garage. I pulled it open and I stuck my head around like this. And all I could see was my dad's white t-shirt and his jeans. I said, dad, what are you doing? And he just turned around like this. Oh, you're going to find out. Don't worry. A few minutes later, we found out. I didn't question my dad after that. <laughs> I just didn't do it. One time, uh, I think I, I had just graduated from high school, and I was getting ready to go to college. <laughs> you know, 
this was a short, he said, I said, so dad, can I have a car? He said, where do you work? <laughs> okay, this discussion's over. <laughs> I didn't say anything else because I didn't have a job. So he made a very quick assessment and lesson to me, like, you want it? Get busy. It's your responsibility. I'm not going to hand it to you. And that's the way he was with everything, um, except when it came to our health. When it came to our health, that was a different story. In a high school basketball game, I tore up my ankle really bad. In fact, the, it, it, the old Rochester Hospital, the doctor said I'd have been better off if I had broken it. It was that bad. And <clears throat> do you remember the old Kmart shoes for about a buck fifty? And they were solid plastic, and when you ran around on the street, they'd cut grooves in the bottom of the sole of the shoe. I kid you not. And then when you went to play on the grass, they were literally like ice skates. You couldn't stand up. So I didn't use those to play basketball, and I, I, I got bumped up to the Chuck Taylors, which were about $5.99. Okay, so they, didn't, they weren't the greatest either, but that's what I tore my ankle up in, wearing a pair of those. So my dad said the, the, the next day, he said, we're going to go to Saul's, we're going to get a different pair of shoes. So we get on the Ambridge and see Myron, and uh, I got a pair, I got a pair of red suede Nikes, and I'm telling you, they were sweet. I brushed them, <laughs> I cleaned them, I took care of them like they were my baby. And after about a month, they split in the back, and I went back down there, and I got another pair, a brand new pair, because he told me they should not do that. I got another pair. I love those things. They were fantastic. So I could not believe, though, those things cost $30. So you might think, well, $30 now in this day and age, that's nothing for a pair of shoes, right? But at that point in time, that was six times as much as my dad had spent on a pair of shoes for me. And I could not fathom, I, I'm not kidding you, I could not fathom my dad spent, spending $30 on a pair of shoes for me. But he wanted me to know, I value you. It is important. This is your health. This is different. And I appreciated it. So, yeah, secondly, fathers, you've got to validate your ch children, your kids. A father must let his children know it is okay to be who God created them to be in this life. Jesus was validated by the Father. In Matthew 3, 13 to 17, God validates his son. Jesus knew his purpose as part of the Trinity. The analogy is similar for earthly father and son. A father must guide his son in becoming the man God wants him to be in, in terms of the Lord's will for his life. Not everyone should have the right to speak into your life as a father figure or your children's lives. That right must be earned. You know, I, I remember every year at school, no matter what I did, whether I was the principal, a teacher, a coach, whatever, I didn't automatically get the right to speak into somebody's life. It had to be earned repeatedly, and that's work. I think I've told you before about how my dad validated me, my little hunting story, up on the hill, right up here by the power lines. The pheasant flew up, and I didn't shoot it, and my brother's yelling at me, and, you know, the whole nine yards. 
And so I never went hunting again, but my dad always asked me. You know, I got into sports more after that, but he always asked me. And that was extremely important to me. As far as your kids go, father figures, they're important as well. Other people will speak into the lives of your children. One of my college football coaches, Ryan and I had gone to a game. And, uh, you know, poor Ryan had to deal with this from time to time. You're going to do what your dad did? You're going to play quarterback? Are you playing quarterback like your dad did? And one of my coaches uh, said that to him from college. And Ryan said, no, I'm in the band. I'm involved in drama. And he explained a few things. And I, I, I never doubted it for a minute because I played for the man when I was in college. I knew what he was going to say next. He said, then you be the best member of the band, and you work to be the best member in the drama club. Do you understand what that did? What that did was, besides me validating my son, he now got validated by a father figure. Do you follow me? I cannot tell you how important that is, because guess what? The other side happens too. Where they're not validated, the worst thing that could have happened there was some sort of negative response that he's not like me. He's not me. He's him, right? So that's, it's, it's very important that we guard as much as we can who gets to speak into life of our children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 talks about not exasperating your children. So uh, I wish I could say I never did that, but I have. And I only remember, I know I've done it more than once, but there's one distinct um, event that I remember more than another. And um, we're sitting at the table, Ryan, Jen, Judy, and I, and I had had a particularly rough day for whatever reason. I don't even remember what it was. It doesn't matter. But I kind of snapped at Ryan for something minuscule that made no sense. And I can still see the look on my daughter's face. That she was stupefied at my response to something so minuscule. In fact, and Judy said something too. And I do remember immediately apologizing. But there was no reason for me at that moment to, you know, exert unwanted authority over my son. In other words, exasperate him, because that's what that is. So we must guard against that as well, because it can be damaging. Let me read something from Stephen Arterburn. Now, you may have heard of him. Um, he's founder of uh, New Life Treatment Centers. Um, let me read something that he wrote that's really pretty good. He said, experience has shown us that men who are happiest and most content in the masculine role in today are those whose fathers invested a great deal of time and energy in their lives. These dads may have worked outside the home, as the vast majority of fathers do in our society, but they were committed to maintaining a positive, nurturing relationship with their sons. These fathers supported their sons in their chosen careers, attempted to understand their ambitions even when they differed from their own and appreciated their achievements. As a result of their investment, 
their sons are among the most well-adjusted and peaceful husbands and fathers in our society. However, men with these kinds of fathers are in the minority today. Most men are struggling <clears throat> excuse me, to recover from relationships with fathers who fail to nurture, affirm, validate them at some level. These fathers have left their sons a legacy of pain, confusion, frustration, anxiety, bitterness, fear, and anger. These adult sons are the angry men of our society. Lastly, or fourthly, I should say, teach them respect. <clears throat> At school, I remember having, we always had to have the rules posted when I first started teaching. They had to be posted on the wall. I had like listen and follow directions, stay on task, um, keep your hands in your own area, blah, 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 blah. And I'm watching an educational program one day, and it's sort of focused on respect, and I'm thinking, you know what? I can make that work easy. So I got rid of all the rules. It's crazy. And I used to tell the kids after, I think it was about my sixth or seventh year of teaching, I said, we have one rule in here. You'll respect all people, places, and things. And I can tell you, I can tell you as I stand here, I never once had a problem where I couldn't tie what somebody did, said, thought, whatever, to respect. Never had a problem with it. It always worked. And it made my life easier, and more importantly, it made the kids' lives easier because they knew where they stood. And we were able to have a lot of fun learning together. So let me share you this, share this with you uh, about respect. This is from a gentleman named <clears throat> J.H. Waterink from the Amsterdam University. He says this, and this, this is pretty good stuff. He says, permit me to make this observation. We must be very careful when speaking of our rights People who constantly refer to the rights tread on dangerous ground. Is it true that you have the unqualified right to respect <clears throat> to the respect of your children and that you have every right to exercise authority over your children? No, you certainly do not have an unqualified right. You can never sever that right from your parental duty before God. John Calvin states it beautifully. Does a person demand his rights? Certainly, I am prepared to grant him his rights. But in so doing, I shall say that he has no other rights than the rights to fulfill his duties. Parents, perform your parental duty toward God and toward your children. Then and only then can you speak of your parental rights. Much is being said about the rebellious spirit of children and young people. On one hand... This spirit of rebellion has come about because children have never learned respect for authority as maybe their parents did not exercise authority. On the other hand, it is also possible they did not learn respect for authority because the parents misused it. Both are equally dangerous. It is no wonder that there are so many pitfalls in exercising authority. He who wields authority wields a God-given weapon and he must constantly be on guard lest the misuse of it for selfish ends. Authority must never be exercised 
as arbitrary, arbitrary or unreasonable. I don't know about you, but there is a significant lack of respect at times in our culture. And because of what I used to do, I, you know, sometimes people where I work now, they'll ask me about it. I get, I get wound up. <laughs> I really get wired. Do I not get wired there? I, 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 it just, because it is just in the pit of my soul that there is nothing, and God has spoken about it so specifically, more important at times than being respectful and teaching and learning what that means. And those are hard lessons. And they can often be very painful. But that's not a bad thing, as long as the learning takes place. So I worked in the prodigal son here um, at the end for us because, you know, Jesus begins in chapter 4 of Luke, and he's talking about a number of things, the Sabbath, prayer, love, judging others. Um, and the two parables before the prodigal son talk about things that are lost. One talks about a lost sheep. One talks about a lost coin. And Jesus uses the word lost eight times in the chapter. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they accused Jesus of welcoming sinners and eating with them in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, which he does. And he begins and he tells them the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know why he welcomed sinners, because they didn't get that. It has everything to do with grace. So let's look at the younger son. And I, when I run through this, you're probably going to see yourself somewhere, too. But the younger son is the sinner. You know, he's got a good home, a good father, who equally splits the inheritance upon his request. And usually that didn't occur until the death of the father. So on one level, he's kind of displaying disrespect toward his father. He is selfish. He's immature. He thought he knew better. Once he got the inheritance and ran out, he got reckless with it, and he abused grace. He handed that inheritance over to others without much question. He desired temporal pleasures. And then he got desperate after he had squandered it all and threw it all away. He hired himself out and he was sent to feed pigs, the lowest of lowly jobs for a Jew. Jews were not even permitted to touch pigs as they were considered unclean animals. So the son longing for their food is about to go as low as you possibly could. And he was given nothing to eat. So in his desperation, he decides to go back to his father his earthly father. And the first thing he states that he's going to say to his father is that he has sinned against heaven and his father. So the son acknowledges his sin. This is the first and most crucial step in reconciliation with God. The son has been humbled by his actions and circumstances. The father greets him from afar, runs, hugs, and kisses him repeatedly. The son says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father says, dress him in the best of clothes. Let's celebrate for my son was dead and now he's alive. The father is rejoicing that the 
son's heart has changed. The father celebrates the fact that his son has acknowledged his own sin and that he's repented and says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. How about the older son? He's a lot like the Pharisees. He is blind to the relationship that he has with his father at home. He's home, but he's not home. It's like he's there, but he's not really there. He's not totally engaged. He's jealous, even though he did receive his half of the inheritance, and he's still jealous. His attitude demonstrates he believes he's superior to his brother. He's not. Bitterness and resentment keep him from forgiving his younger brother. He's extremely self-righteous. So were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. As he refused to associate with his own brother, the sinner. He's kind of forgotten how to rejoice when a sinner comes back to God. And the father in the parable, who is like God the father. He's compassionate, he's loving, he's forgiving. That's a picture of our heavenly father. He's the giver of grace to his young son. He gives him something that he does not deserve. That's grace. He demonstrates love for both sons. He split the inheritance equally. The father is trying to teach his sons, really both sons, about God's grace and to be concerned about the condition of the heart. And how is he attempting to teach the concept of grace? What is he doing? Jesus does it by demonstrating it. The Father waits to hear us in the same manner when we acknowledge our own sin, humble ourselves before him with a contrite and repentant heart. The kind of heart, this kind of heart allows a father to operate and lead a family with God toward unbridled obedience to the will of God for their life. And the father can then demonstrate love, discipline, and responsibility, validate his children, challenge them as opposed to exasperating them, teach them respect, and demonstrate and model grace, God's grace, to their children when appropriate. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law viewed themselves as righteous, and he wanted to clear up the matter about who is truly lost. Everybody is lost, including fathers. All children need to see and experience grace from their earthly father. All children need to experience and see grace from their earthly father as part of experiencing the grace of God. The kind of grace that can only be explained as coming from God the Father because when that happens at the right time, the earthly father has been used by God the Father to give his child an eternal lesson. Nobody else can do that. You can't do that on your own. That only comes from God the Father. Finally, as fathers, we set the first and most important example of who Christ is, interacting with our immediate family. But never forget, anyone we encounter or are observed by also looks at the fatherly example we set when we call ourselves Christians. Christians.